Welcome to the Center for Thomistic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Chris Wolfe, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of St. Thomas, giving a talk entitled, Looking for the Common Good in Our Republic, Considering Some Objections from Alistair McIntyre. And without further ado, our podcast. Okay, so my, my talk today is Searching for the Common Good in Our Democracy, Reflections on Alistair McIntyre. I'm pleased to talk to you today about this subject because I've heard some people at the Center for Thomistic Studies actually have an interest in McIntyre. Um, many of the students here have read McIntyre's work and I've actually met a recent graduate of the Center, John Masias. Uh, we met at a McIntyre conference in St. Louis uh, a couple years back. I think the Center's interest in McIntyre and your interest in McIntyre is actually wholly appropriate because I think McIntyre is probably the greatest Catholic philosopher who's living right now. Uh, it's a pretty big claim, I guess, and no offense to present company, but uh, aspiring philosophers too. Um, McIntyre was most notable for helping to revive the study of virtue ethics with his 1981 book, After Virtue. The revival has gone well enough that virtue ethics is now considered an approach that students of philosophy are expected to know about, usually alongside utilitarianism and Kantianism. It's probably problematic that uh, Disciplines like bioethics see virtue ethics as simply one of three options because that can lead to one to think that it's okay to sample arguments from these theories uh, pragmatically, but that's a discussion for another time. I think it's at least good that virtue ethics arguments are now out there, whereas for long stretches of the 20th century, utilitarianism was considered to be the only respectable option by mainstream American philosophers. I've heard that some of the graduate students are also taking a class this semester on modern moral philosophy. Those in the, you in the class might point instead to Elizabeth Anscombe as the one who revived virtue ethics. Point taken. Point taken. She did, I would say she laid out the key arguments clearly and powerfully a generation before McIntyre did. However, I would argue that McIntyre helped flesh out the arguments of Anscombe by providing extremely insightful histories of philosophy and accounts of how ethical ideas, language, and practices in contemporary life have been corrupted by modern moral philosophy. So having praised McIntyre as a great Catholic philosopher, I'd also point out that Catholics, of course, don't have to feel like they have to agree with everything he says. And I will actually be content contesting one of his arguments today regarding rights and the common good. A key part of McIntyre and Anscombe's arguments about modern moral philosophy is that our language about what is good and bad, right and wrong, has been corrupted. McIntyre claims that our, our Western culture is now an emotivist 
culture, where ethical arguments are only about feelings, not reasons. Our culture, in our culture, when someone says, you ought to respect a woman's right to a decision to have an abortion, it is not politically correct to ask, why? Why? Um, the politically correct thing is to see your interlocutor as expressing a feeling with an implied question, don't you feel the same way? Such moral values are, of course, subjective, and they don't actually provide reasons. McIntyre argues that the historical reason why people talk this way in our modern culture is that the language of moral obligation made sense in a time when nearly everyone adhered to a divine law conception of ethics, but it does not make sense otherwise. What force does a moral ought have for someone who does not believe in a God that will judge him for disobeying it? The adjective moral is now a survival term, according to McIntyre, invoking a mysterious sort of guilt that in principle no one can explain. Anscombe and McIntyre saw that the only real alternative to a language of moral, moral obligation was to think about obligations in terms of human nature. There are ethical obligations people have that are tied to their roles. Role of a policeman, there are obligations tied to that. Duty to protect people. Role of a parent, duty to take care of your kids. But most importantly, our role as human beings. Human nature is teleologically ordered toward happiness and virtue. Because of this, there are obligations that we might say are logically welded to the human essence. That's a phrase uh, Bernard Williams uses, logically welded. They can't be broken off. <laughs> you can't just alienate them. And it is the final end of human nature that provides reasons for what the proper objects of feelings are. Those types of obligations are what I think Anscombe refers to as Aristotelian necessity. If you're reading Anscombe, keep an eye out for that term. McIntyre, in his books, traced the history of the moral ought all the way from the Middle Ages to the dead end of our emotivist culture. In his histories, he also is on the lookout for additional terms, like the moral ought, which might be confusing our ethical thought today. He believes the idea of rights is also causing problems. To have our ethics actually make sense, we should speak in terms of duties and virtues and natural goods, but not human rights, McIntyre argues. My dissertation on this subject, I interpreted McIntyre to offer three types of critiques of rights language. First, a kind of ontological critique. Second, a kind of historical critique. And third, a kind of critique of their use, rights terms use and deliberation. In my talk today, I will briefly say something about the first two, but I don't want to focus on those. I want to focus on the deliberation critique. First critique, what I would call an ontological critique, is that the entities we call rights simply don't exist in a metaphysical sense. He famously wrote in After Virtue, the truth is plain, there are no such rights, and belief in them is one with belief in witches and unicorns.
kind of a Halloween type <clears throat> quote there. You may have a mental image of a human right or a unicorn, but they are fictional entities for McIntyre. Now, my response to that criticism in my dissertation, I would first I first agree with McIntyre that many of the human rights people claim in our culture are indeed impossible fictions, especially those rights that entail radical of the autonomy of the individual. As McIntyre argues in his book, Dependent Rational Animals, it is, of course, impossible to be completely autonomous. No man an island, as they say. Still other human rights people claim would impose unjust burdens on others. However, McIntyre is incorrect, I think, to claim that there are no human rights. There are some, some human rights entailed by his own virtue ethics theory, I would argue. The right to life enshrined in our Declaration of Independence is indeed real. The ontological status of rights as entities is the same as duties or virtues. They're not concrete particulars like the table in front of me, but they're abstract universals or relations in this case, specifically. A right binds two people together in a relation just as a duty does. Maybe not just as a duty does, but similarly. <laughs> Second type of critique McIntyre offers, besides the ontological critique, I'd say, is kind of a historical critique, which deals with the issue of when did rights language develop in Western history? When the Romans used the term use, they did not mean exactly what we mean by the term right, which comes from the German Recht. In a 1991 essay titled Community Law and the Idiom and Rhetoric of Rights, McIntyre claimed that our modern sense of rights in hearing in subjects arose during the middle, late Middle Ages, and specifically was first given that sense by the nominalist philosopher William of Ockham in a debate over property within the Franciscan order. So for McIntyre, rights are inherently modern, inherently disruptive. In that essay, McIntyre cites historian Richard Tuck's book, Natural Rights Theories, as the basis for his claims. I personally think McIntyre's claims are actually more similar to Michel Villay, his, his history of rights, than Tuck. Um, but I, I can't go into these details today. In my dissertation, I, I also bring up some arguments against this from Brian Tierney on the history of rights. Tierney argues that actually the idea of rights, the concept of rights, including this of subjective, that it inheres in subjects, uh, that that goes actually back to canon law far, be, far before uh, Occam. So thirdly and finally, the, the main event for today, talking about deliberation. McIntyre argues that rights language is a discussion-stopping trump card. It's a trump. It just, it wins. I invoke my right, end of discussion. Um, in other words, when someone claims a right, there can be no, no more discussion about what is good or best to do. McIntyre's arguments on this score remind me very much of a book that came out in the early 90s called Rights Talk by Mary Ann Glendon. I actually love the cover too. It's these two people just shouting each other, my right versus my right. Um, 
Glendon offered evidence to show that for the past 50 years or so, the term right had increased in its usage exponentially in our society, especially in the media and in the law, and that that was causing disruption of deliberation. Just for fun, I checked, looked up on Google, Google Books. You know, they, you can type in words, they're the increase in usage. I looked at the charts for right, and you can see it, 1800, 1900, 2000. Yes, there is an increase in the usage of the word rights in, on Google Books, at least, across all these different texts. I looked at some other things. Human rights, uh, the chart, it's an exponential ride, rise in the use of the term human rights. Uh, large increase in the term autonomy. Term natural rights, it's still used, but had a big spike back in the late uh, 18th century. It's a little bit down now. Uh, duties is down. Uh, <laughs> virtues and virtue. Virtues and virtue two is down. Uh, and so this is that's just totally rough. It's not a really a, a true empirical test of that, but I just thought I'd look at that, and uh, that's what comes up. Thinks she's right. People are using rights language more now in a certain type of rights language. However, Glendon did not argue that the use of rights talk per se makes deliberation impossible, but that those rights connected with radical autonomy of the individual was what was causing disruption. As I acknowledged earlier, McIntyre goes further than Glendon to argue that in general, societies that have embraced the language of rights, not just the rights about autonomy, but rights in general, have abandoned deliberation about the common good, replacing those discussions with bargaining. Not deliberation, but bargaining uh, among various interests. So I have several quotes from McIntyre to that effect. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and go through them. Uh, and who's justice which rationality, the main follow-up to after virtue, McIntyre claimed that it's the ability to bargain that is crucial in the politics of de modern democracy. Political authority is seen as a means to promote to the promotion of the interest of groups, and to understand interests as a collective expression of the passions of individuals flows right into the emotivism critique. In his 1991 essay on the rhetoric of rights, McIntyre claimed that our public discussions are merely a kind of rhetorical device giving a semblance of rational debate to the interchanges of groups, each of which is only, in fact, giving expression to its own partisan interests rather than participating in a common enterprise. In a 1998 lecture, Politics, Philosophy, and the Common Good, McIntyre claimed that our, our decisions and policies emerge from a strange melange of arguments, debating points, and the influence of money and other forms of power, and that in truth, our societies are oligarchies dis disguised as democracies. Oligarchies disguised as democracies. McIntyre reiterated, reiterated these points in his two, two more recent books, Dependent Rational Animals and ethics in the conflicts of modernity. 
Something that I think is very helpful in dependent rational animals, though, is a section where McIntyre spells out what would constitute a successfully deliberate society. He gives three requirements that ought to be met. First, all independent reasoners must be afforded the opportunity to participate in contributing public proposals, objections, and arguments. Second, the ends of deliberation that deliberation aims toward must incorporate ideas of need and desert. And third, if anyone is not capable of participating, their voice ought to be represented virtually through proxies, he calls them. I think that's an excellent description of what deliberation on the common good in our republic ought to aim for. However, I differ with McIntyre in believing America is a lot more successful at achieving that than he says. For the remainder of my time, I will offer some evidence against that third argument against rights, that it stops deliberation about the common good in our society. Once I have done this, you know, just thinking through the logic of this, I will not prove that rights exist, but I will have shown that his arguments fail. Okay. Some, so some empirical evidence of deliberation. Deliberation. As much as I hate to say this, this is not a question for political philosophy. I'm usually the guy who says, let's study more political philosophy all the time. <laughs> but I think it's actually an empirical question. Does deliberation happen or not? And so we should actually turn to politi empirical political science for this. Now the methodology of most political empirical science, though, excludes the possibility of common goods. Much of the political science literature on interest groups, for instance, is written from the pluralist standpoint, which considers the preferences of groups. Much of the literature on Congress is written from a rational choice standpoint, which considers the preferences of individuals. So both of them, and political science in general, is heavily influenced by economic theory, empirical political science, uh, which instead of considering what would actually be good for each individual in society, considers what, it, what each individual wants, what would maximize the aggregate of individual or group preferences. So the, the Chicago School of Economics, free market economics, they had a, there's an article written, the Chicago Credo. Chicago Credo was that with regard to government and public officials, although they claim to serve the common good, they should always be assumed to be acting in their own self-interest. <laughs> the Chicago Credo. This type of political science is fun, actually, to study the corruption <laughs> of government officials. It's fun. I, I took a rational choice economics class in graduate school. But it doesn't have eyes to see the common good. It doesn't look for the common good, even. Thankfully, though, in trying to figure this issue out, I discovered at least one small branch of political science that embraces the assumption that ideas about the common good can influence individuals, not just their self-interest. This school of thought goes by the name of deliberative democracy. It was established in the 80s and 90s in response to the rational choice economic school. Now, I will say that deliberative democracy, most of the scholars who are counted as deliberative democracy scholars, they are political theorists and 
writing normative works about this is the way our deliberation should happen. They're not empirical political scientists. And so actually, some of the people counted as deliberative democracy theorists include Jürgen Habermas, uh, John Rawls in his later political liberalism phase, Amy Gutman, Dennis Thompson, and Cass Sunstein. These are theorists mainly. Uh, Sunstein was the, maybe you know the author of the book, Nudge. He's probably the most, he's probably the smartest person that was in the Obama administration. Really smart uh, political scientist. So none of that's actually helpful <laughs> in looking at, it, does deliberation happen? Does it actually happen or not as an explanatory uh, concept? However, there is a small but insightful group of scholars who do do empirical studies of deliberate democracy. These include Jane Mansbridge, Joseph Bissett, who was one of my professors in grad school, and he's the reason I know about all this stuff, um, and uh, Paul Quirk. They have conducted empirical studies of deliberation in town halls, in state legislatures, in bureaucracy, and in the U.S. Congress. The, con the Congress studies, I think, are what is most important for this question involving McIntyre, because it's because the Congress study will consider the common good of the entire nation. The institutional level, that's the same institutional level that Aquinas and others from the philosophical tradition considered uh, the common good in large part. Other institutions have common goods, such as schools, families, but it's important to know whether the nation state itself includes deliberation about the common good. Um, and reading some of Tom's work also convinced me of of that, reinforce that for me. Can we find deliberation among our representatives in Congress then? Or is it all bargaining and special interests like we usually hear about? First of all, let's talk about this. How do these d studies of deliberative democracy actually work, these empirical studies? What do they look for? Well, they look for three things. Information, arguments, and persuasive appeals. That's actually kind of similar, I think, to what McIntyre described in Dependent Rational Animals. If information is introduced into a discussion which either changes the mind of a congressman or helps a congressman confirm that he embraced the best course of action, that's seen as evidence of deliberation. If a congressman simply votes the way his constituents or special interests desire him to at the expense of the whole country, that is evidence of a lack of deliberation on the common good. <laughs> deliberation in these studies is defined as this way, reasoning on the merits of public policy. And I think all those words are important. Reasoning on the merits of public policy. Reasoning on the merits of an issue is different than bargaining or horse trading about an issue. A horse trade involves a vote trade. I probably don't even care about the issue that you are trying to get votes on, but I will vote on it so that you will vote for my bill. It involves no deliberation. It's just a, it's a bargaining tactic. Now, is that all there is to Congress, just the horse trading? I don't believe so. Um, that kind of thinking is very different than a discussion of what is the best way, for instance, to construct an interstate highway system given our resources and the information that road experts might provide. Bargaining and pandering to special interests, of course, helps a congressman get reelected. 
but they do actually, but but they do not actually help them legislate better. The bar, the pandering to special interests. However, also keep in mind that doing a good job in making laws for the common good also might help you get reelected, <laughs> um, and that might play a point for them too. So, what do the empirical studies say or show? They show that there is a whole lot of bargaining and pandering going on, admittedly. But there's at least some deliberation going on, too. Paul Quirk and Gary Muccheroni's 2006 book, Deliberative Choices, is probably the most thorough empirical study of this. They found that although much of the floor discussion in Congress may seem like grandstanding, there are very few instances in which an effect issue debate taken as a whole stream of conversation completely ignores the best available evidence. So if we go to Congress in Washington, D.C., and we sit through all those debates gavel to gavel, actually all the relevant information would probably be brought up, surprisingly. It seems like they're just saying nonsense up there, but according to the studies, the information is provided in the floor debates. Um, Bassett, in his book, Mild Voice of Reason, argues that most deliberation happens in Congress in the committee markup sessions of bills more, more than any other time. Congressmen change their minds about items within the markup more than, than any other time. And it should be said that the bargaining and re-election incentive simply don't explain how the congressmen actually initially write the bills. The bargaining comes in at the end, usually, not at the beginning when you're actually writing out the language of the bill. Um, that actually does involve thinking and deliberation, maybe by the staffers, unfortunately, <laughs> and not the congressmen themselves, but it does involve thinking. There are also uh, studies of individual bills that show the effect of deliberation. Currently, the Congress class I'm teaching right now they're reading a book called Showdown at Gucci Gulch. Gucci Gulch is where the lobbyists meet up with the congressmen in DC. And it's a book about how congressmen during the 1986 tax reform astonishingly turned against the special interest lobbyists who helped get them elected. Now that's miraculous. <laughs> and it does, it's rare, but happens often enough in Congress to show that deliberation actually does happen. These are exactly the sort of events that James Madison hoped the institutional setting of Congress would facilitate, that representatives would refine and enlarge the public views. In conclusion, based on the evidence I just presented, presented I think McIntyre is wrong to say there is no deliberation about the common good in our republic. I think part of the problem was that McIntyre was simply not looking for it, but he's hardly to blame on that. Deliberation is still an understudied and underrated topic in political science and as a virtue we ourselves desire in our elected officials. Most of us first think about electing someone of our ideology rather than someone we would trust to deliberate about the common good of the whole country. In that we lean more toward a delegate model of representation than a trustee model. However, it's probably good to vote that way, in usually. 
because it's also the case that there are true and false conceptions of the common good. And we wouldn't want to elect someone with an extremely poor conception of the common good, even if he were good at deliberating. So as I open the floor to questions, there are two possible directions I think it might be interesting to take the conversation from here, although I know there are all kinds of questions that could be asked otherwise. Two of them. First, I would be interested to hear what you think would encourage deliberation about the common good in our republic. There have been several ideas about that. Some believe that increasing the budgets of the congressional staffs is necessary in order to provide better information to congressmen. Always increase the budget, yes. It is true, the budgets have not been increased since the 1980s while the country has grown in population. That's true. And here's the thing, think tanks and lobbyists might be filling the role of congressional staffs and are more biased than the staffs um, toward the special interests. So there might, there might be something to that. Others believe we should allow more privacy for more candid conversations among the congressmen. With the advent of C-SPAN in the of C-SPAN and the 1970s Sunshine Laws, a discussion cannot be as free as it once was in Congress, in the committee rooms. If you say something stupid in the heat of debate, it'll end up on video, and it might end up on the nightly news out of context. And you should feel free to have conversations where you're candid. Still others believe that deliberation could be improved by forcing congressmen to get off their phones and social media. The, the additional connection with constituents through social media is a benefit, but it comes at the cost of distraction from deliberation. They're getting distracted by how connected they are. That's, that's the theme of uh, this other recent empirical study, the public congress, congressional deliberation in a new media age. Um, that's, so that's a possibility too. I would also add to all these possible improvements for deliberation in Congress that deliberation, that much deliberation that was once done in Congress is now done through the rulemaking progress of bureaucratic agencies. That those powers have been delegated to them and the public has very little participation in that. Comment period. So what should we do about all that? What, and what else could we do to improve deliberation? That's one. Second thing I'd like to ask, I'd like to propose an objection to my own argument. <laughs> uh, probably not a good idea. Uh, I wrote this argument, I wrote this article that you have before you three years ago, and in that, since then I've had the, the chance to rethink it a bit. It could be objected that the issues deliberated in Congress only cover a very thin, limited range of issues and that is not truly deliberation about the common good for that reason. It's only a thin range of issues. What I mean is this. A debate about roads is not as fundamental as a debate about abortion. A debate about roads is mainly a de debate about means, not ends. We almost all agree on the end of effective transportation with the roads, but we don't agree about the end of radical autonomy of the individual involved with abortion. Some issues are seemingly impossible for us to have discussions about in our polarized politics. 
James Man- Mansbridge book wrote a book titled Why We Lost ERA, claiming she saw deliberation break down between her feminist side and the Phyllis Schlafly side of the ERA debate. And there's no discussion that could ha- be even had. But deliberation about ends cannot simply be avoided or bracketed off, though, I think. As Rawls might say, bracketed off. In the build-up to the Civil War, Stephen Douglas famously tried to bracket off the slavery issue from the public debate. But Lincoln showed in the debates why that amounts to relativism about ethics, really. And as McIntyre said in uh, Dependent Rational Animals, the ends that deliberation aims toward must incorporate the ideas of need and desert. And that goes very deep. It's not a thin thing. It's It's a thick conception there. That requires thinking about ends, and there's no way around it. Some of our avoidance of ends in congressional debate may be due to federalism. The fact that the national government only is supposed to legislate on enumerated powers while the, while the states are free to legislate morality. Federalism is always a nice get-out-of-jail-free card for <laughs> political theorists. But let's not avoid the main issue, the main issues. Do rights exist? Does true deliberation about the common good occur in our republic? And is our patriotism justified? Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Studies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at stthom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot e-d-u slash c-t-s. Thank you.